good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Thank you all for joining us again. And we are speaking to Dr. Judith Carter today, who is a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. It's a real privilege. Thank you. Um, we are very happy to um, have you here. And first of all, before we start, everybody knows what a gynae is. And we know you're practicing as, a, I think, the colloquial term everyone says, I'm going to my gynae or something this and that about their gynae. So do, do you want to just tell us what the difference between an obstetrician and a gynecologist is, and then just uh, you practicing as a gynecologist, not just an obstetrician. Is that correct? That's correct. So basically, um, when you decide to be an obstetrician and gynecologist, you um, train at a university, you do a postgraduate course in both obstetrics and gynecology. Obstetrics is the practice of caring for um, women in their reproductive years um, as they are preparing for a pregnancy during the pregnancy and after the baby is born. Um, whereas gynecology encompasses female health care outside of that. So we would look at adolescent, looking after adolescent women, um, women that are no longer having babies, they've had their families, and, of course, the menopausal women, which is very largely my focus currently. Um, and, you know, often women... The only doctor that a woman will see on a regular basis is the gynecologist. So we also do try very hard to look at menopausal medicine. So to not only look at the gynecological side, the reproductive side, but also to look at her general health, particularly as she ages. Okay, very, very good. Yeah, I guess you the access point to healthcare. And uh, as they are aging, you've got to, I guess maybe it's your responsibility. Would you see to kind of make sure they're healthy in in uh, all aspects? Um, and can I ask maybe a bit of a controversial question? Why has there been such a big shift of um, obstetricians and gynecologists recently moving away from obstetrics to uh, gynecology? Is it a lifestyle thing? Is it a insurance thing? Is it? Um, do you want to enlighten us a little bit? So I think it's it's. It's different things for different people, but I think one of the major drivers is the fact that um, it is a very litigious discipline. And what that means is that of all of the disciplines you can practice in medicine, it's the one where you are most likely to be sued uh, as a doctor. Um, and, and unfortunately, the thing about obstetrics is that it is a very unpredictable um Process So giving birth to a baby is very unpredictable and a lot of what can go wrong is not actually in the doctor's hands. And, and oh, yeah. in our modern day society, when, you know, people expect to get what they pay for, so to speak. And when the outcome is, is bad, 
it is na- human nature to blame the, the doctor involved, and that can lead to litigation of enormous sums of money. You're looking at um, 20, 30, 50 million rand. And as a result, we've had to insure ourselves to make provision for the time when we are likely to be sued because all doctors know that you are likely to be sued at some stage or another. But along with those huge premiums that we have to pay, and my colleagues are currently, I think, paying around 120,000 rand a month to be be insured. But it's also the responsibility that comes with that and and the expectation. And for many of us, that has just proven to be too great a burden to bear, which is a real shame because it is a wonderful discipline. And it's the one discipline where you almost always are involved in a happy time in a family's life. So it's a shame that 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 um, dark aspect has come into the practice of obstetrics and gynecology. It's very, it's very sad because I mean, who will be left soon to to deliver babies? Every um, obstetrician you hear, you um, yeah. almost on like a weekly basis that so and so is going into gynecology. It's very, very sad that it's been uh, pushed or it's got to this. We're going to take a short ad break, and when we come back, I'd like to start talking specifically about when is the first visit to a gynecologist. We'll be back after this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we are speaking to Dr. Judith Carter, specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. And we're just about to talk about... When is the first visit to a gynecologist or when should a, a teenager or a young lady first uh, visit a gynae? So that's an interesting question. Um, a lot of people think that a young woman needs to visit a gynecologist a lot earlier than she actually does. There, there are a couple of things that I think are crucial um, healthcare issues in young women. And the, the first is um, making sure that these young ladies and gentlemen, to be honest, have the human papillomavirus vaccine um, under the so that they have it before they are 15, right? And okay. the thing is, that is something that doesn't need to be driven by the gynecologist. It should actually be driven by pediatricians and the and the general general practitioners. Beyond that, the first time a woman needs a pap smear in our country is actually 25 years of age. That is what our South African guidelines say. Um, So as a matter of fact, if you follow those guidelines, there's no reason for a young woman to come to a gynecologist until she is 25. That having been said, there are lots of youngsters that do come to see us because, of course, you can have all sorts of menstrual problems prior to that um, period problems, uh, discussions around contraception, discussions around their sexual debut and what is safe practice, and a lot of this is 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 something that op- that that should overlap really with the general practitioner's role. But I think particularly in our country, um, because of the access patients have to specialists, which is not the case in other countries. Um, most women would probably feel more comfortable coming to a gynecologist for an intimate examination and perhaps to discuss issues like their sexuality, etc. 
You mentioned that a woman would only have to have a pap smear at 25 years old. Can you maybe yes. tell us uh, why that is the case and then you can actually tell us what a pap smear is? Okay. So let's start with what a pap smear is because I think that's that's crucial. And many young women come to the gynae to have a pap smear and they have no idea what a pap smear is. So a pap smear is a, a special test that doctors do. It can be a GP or it can be a gynecologist. It can even be a nurse who's been trained where we take a sample of the cells that line the cervix, which is the mouth of your womb that is present inside every woman's vagina. And we take that sample using something called a speculum. So a speculum is like a duck-billed instrument that we need to put in the vagina and open ever so slightly so that we can see the cervix. And then we put a brush into the canal of the cervix to get a few of the cells of the skin that lines the cervix. And that goes to the laboratory and they have a look under the microscope to make sure that the cells look normal. Now, the reason why we have to do that is because once women become sexually active, and by sexually active, I don't necessarily mean just penetrative sex. They can have um, had um, foreplay with partners before without ever having had penetrative sex, and that can pass on the virus called human papillomavirus. And human papillomavirus is an incredibly common virus that will infect up to 80% of us by the time we are 50. And it would be no problem to get human papillomavirus except for the fact that it can cause two, two problems. And that is, one, it can cause genital warts, which can be very unpleasant, albeit not harmful. And then secondly, it can cause these abnormal cells in the cervix that you wouldn't know you had unless you had a pap smear. So the reason why um, the vaccine is so important is because we want to vaccinate young people before they ever have their sexual debut um, so that we can prevent them from getting the types of human papillomavirus that are associated with genital warts and cervical cancer. Um, so that's that's very, very important. Um, but we, you know, we also just want to, the problem with, with HPV is because it's so common, we know that young people in their early um, sexually active years often will have several partners in a short period of time. And the chances of them having human papillomavirus, including the high-risk sub subtypes that cause cervical cancer, is actually quite high. But we also know that if we just left that patient for six months to a year, her immune system would get rid of the virus and she would be back to baseline, you know, with no problem. So we don't want to over pap smear that young woman in her, in her teens and, and her early twenties because the chances of picking up human papillomavirus is excellent. And that can often lead them to unnecessary interventions, unnecessary investigations, biopsies of the cervix, etc., that um, can have reproductive outcomes for her. For example, one of the things that can happen if you end up getting treated for abnormal cells is you can shorten the cervix, and that can increase your risk of preterm births, 
when it is time to have babies. So we don't want to subject that young population to those potential pitfalls when we know that almost all of the time they will clear those viruses. But by the time a woman gets to around 25, um, whatever high-risk types of human papillomavirus or HPV that she still that she has in her genital tract at that time is probably virus that she's had there for a few years that hasn't been cleared by the immune system. And that is the kind of HPV that we worry about because that is the kind of HPV that then integrates into the cell's DNA and changes the cell in such a way that it starts to produce these abnormal cells. And over a period of time, several years, that can ultimately develop into a cervical cancer. So what what age... Ideally, should the vaccine be given? So it it depends very much on the population that you're serving, so what the age of sexual debut would be. So in our country, that that age might be quite young, nine, ten years of age. Um, But you can vaccinate, you can vaccinate kids quite comfortably under 14 just with two shots of the vaccine, which is very important because that makes it a lot more cost effective. Over 15, you would need a full three shots over six months, so it's quite a bit more expensive. And as a matter of fact, you can vaccinate people, certainly the one vaccine is registered all the way up until 45 years of age. But I say to my patients that you're going to get the most bang for your buck, so the most value for what you're paying if you vaccinate young people um, who haven't had exposure to human papillomavirus. Once you start to vaccinate older teenagers who have already started having sex or adults, it's not that you can't get a bene- you can't get benefit from the vaccine. You certainly can, but perhaps not as much benefit because you may already have human papillomavirus. And this is, the vaccine is a preventative strategy. It can't take away or cure the virus you already have. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break. We'll be back after this. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Derson, and we are speaking to Dr. Judith Carter, specialist obstetrician and gynecologist, we're just speaking about the HPV vaccine to prevent cervical cancer. So, Dr. Carter, what would your, be your ideal age or what do you advise in your practice? And I know you said it depends on the sexual debut, but uh, before puberty, after puberty, when, um, when, should, uh, when do you advise mostly that? that uh, I would say uh, around about 11, 12, 13 would be the right age to do it. Because that is the other thing that, I mean, it's a difficult topic to bring up and something that we as parents perhaps don't like to think about. But that is that, as a matter of fact, kids are having their sexual debut a lot earlier than we may hope and than we may think. And we're not talking just about um, kids in less privileged set- settings, but kids in more privileged settings as well. So um, it would be it can be scary to hear some of the stories, quite frankly. So 
to me, you know, around about 12 years of age is, is, is perfect, except if you feel that, um, you know, this child may be having a sexual debut potentially at a younger age. Okay, and do we know if this is part of, um, is it part of the government vaccine rollout? Like the, um, it is. Yes. It is. So a lot of schools are, um, are vaccinating, are vaccinating kids already as part of the vaccines that are given to schools. I'm not sure that it's a completely countrywide, um, rollout yet, but certainly that's the idea. Fine. Okay. So you mentioned that um, uh, people come in for pap smear at 25 and you can see uh, microscopically at the laboratory whether they have normal cells or not. Yeah. Would people, so this is, this is all uh, prevention. Would people know if they had abnormal cervical cells or not? So that, that's the problem is that you will not know that you have these abnormal cells. They're completely without symptoms. And that is why the screening tests are so important because you won't have pain, you won't have bleeding, usually you won't have any of that. As a matter of fact, once you have those things, you may already have a fairly advanced cervical cancer. And even for us, looking at the cervix, when we put that speculum in and we have a look at the cervix, we it looks normal to us when we look at it with the naked eye. But the pap smear um, then collects some of those cells, and then under the microscope you can see you can see that they look abnormal, and then the laboratory will report it to us. The other thing as well to know is that from the age of 30, we start screening with a human papillomavirus test rather than um, a test where we look at the cells under the microscope, which is called cytology. So over 30, we know that if you have high-risk human papillomavirus in your genital tract, that you are at increased risk of ultimately developing a cervical cancer. So we test directly then for the virus that causes the cervical cancer. And in so doing, we will pick up a lot more people at risk than with the pap smear alone or the cytology test alone, because the cytology test is actually quite a poor test. It only picks up an abnormality 50, um, 30 to 50% of the, sorry, no, it's 50 to 70% of the time. The rest of the time, the abnormality is there and you may miss it. Whereas the HPV test will pick up a, a problem if it's there 95% of the time. So the pickup is a lot better. Um, and you know, every now and again, you'll hear of a woman who had an, had a normal pap smear 18 months ago and now she's got a cervical cancer. Well, the bottom line is that that pap smear wasn't normal 18 months ago. It's just that the pap smear didn't pick up. The pap smear didn't pick up the problem. There was a problem there, but it just wasn't picked up by the pap smear because of the failings of that test. Okay, so uh, person X comes back from the lab with abnormal cells. What's what's next for him? So it depends on the age of the person and on how abnormal those cells are. So if you have pap smeared someone under 25, 
which we probably shouldn't be doing. But I'll be honest, I do start pap smearing from 21 if you are sexually active. That's according to the American guidelines. So say now I've I've pap smeared or done a cytology test on a 22-year-old and it's come back with mildly abnormal cells. For her, I will give her body a chance to clear that abnormality and I'll ask her to come back in 6 to 12 months' time for us to repeat the pap smear. If there is a severe abnormality, even in that young 22-year-old or in um, a woman older than 25, then you you need to see what the HPV is that she carries, okay? And the laboratory can then do a test on that same sample you took for cytology and see what kinds of HPV are there. If it's just low-risk kinds of HPV, then you can probably just repeat the pap smear in 6 to 12 months. But if it is high-risk HPV, then the next step would be something called a colposcopy. And a colposcopy is where is something that we do here in the rooms where we put in a speculum again and we look at the cervix with a special microscope that we have called a colposcope. We then put plain old vinegar on the cervix, and we put something called Lugol's iodine on the cervix. And all of this will help us to see if there are, an, if there is an abnormal area under the microscope. So in other words, these substances plus the microscope help us to see an abnormality that cannot be seen with the naked eye. We then would biopsy that, which is a very quick Little pinch of a biopsy, it's not very painful. Um, and that little piece of tissue gets sent to the lab, and that tells us 100% what are we dealing with. Have we got just a minor abnormality? So in other words, the cells just look like they're infected with human, human papillomavirus, but they're not precancerous. Are they um, very mildly precancerous cells, or are they more severely Precancerous cells. So we talk about something called CIN1, CIN2, CIN3. CIN is cervical, so of the cervix, intraepithelial neoplasia. What that just means is um, precancerous, precancerous cells within the lining of the cervix. Okay. And if it's CIN1, then it's just on the very lowermost layer. If it's CIN2, then it's two-thirds of that layer of that skin of the cervix. And if it's CIN3, it's three-thirds of the skin of the cervix. And if we have a CIN2 or 3, then we know that it, it, it would make sense to remove that abnormal area so that it doesn't have an opportunity to progress into a cervical cancer. And that is also something that can be easily done in the rooms with a machine, a little a, a machine that uses electricity to cut out that small abnormal area. And that's called a LETS, large loop excision of the transformation zone. Okay, fine. So you take that's basically you cutting it as a therapeutic and it is, a diagnostical. So remember, you've made your diagnosis with the biopsy. Okay. Yeah? So okay. now you are you are treating it. 
by actually cutting out that entire abnormal area. And it's, it's usually just a very small piece of tissue. So um, it, it's, it shouldn't have any repercussions for that woman long term. But women do need to know that it can shorten the cervix slightly particularly if you've had to take a large piece of tissue. And that can have an impact on your ability to carry a baby to term when the time comes. Okay. We're going to take another short ad break. We'll be back after this. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to This Care Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we are speaking to Dr. Judith Carter specialist, obstetrician and gynecologist, and we've been going all through when you should see a gynae, the HPV vaccine, pap smears and treatment for um, neoplasia neoplasia, um, and abnormal cells in the cervix. Dr. Carter, until which age or what age does a woman need to keep on having a pap smear? Is it for the rest of her life or is it only until she reaches menopause? So it's very important for women to continue having um, screening for cervical cancer until 70 years of age. So that is what um, we would advise. There are other countries that um, stop screening a little bit earlier, 60, 65 years of age. But I think it also depends very much on health economics, Um as to what age um, the screening program should stop. I think if, you, if you're in a wealthy country, you'll continue longer than if you're in a poorer country or, um, you know, where, where one has to rationalize resources. As a matter of fact, the menopausal patient is, is at significant risk of HPV disease because this is often the time where women will have divorced or been widowed and maybe contemplating a new sexual relationship with with another with an, a new partner, and this is a time where they can certainly pick up human papillomavirus. The other thing as well is that menopausal women do not have the same kind of thick, protective, robust vaginal skin as young women do, more likely to experience um, trauma um, um, and friction and even a little bit of bleeding from sexual intercourse. And, you know, this is a time where one can pick up um, um, viral infections a lot easier, like um, HIV, HPV, etc. Okay, so let's shift maybe a bit over to uh, later life when, well, maybe not so late life when uh, women starting the end to have the end of their menstrual cycle and uh, become menopausal. As you yeah. said, it was a great interest of yours. At which age does this usually happen, or is this different for all women? So there is a very wide range of uh, of what's considered normal. So anywhere between 45 to 55 is considered absolutely normal. But the the average age is around 51. That having been said, there is a group of patients that will become menopausal between 40 and 45, and those women are 
deemed to have had an early menopause. Anyone who has had a menopause, and there are a few women who have had a menopause younger than 40, are um, thought to have what we call premature or ovarian insufficiency. So for an, uh, it is abnormal to become menopausal that young, and it is often because of some underlying disease or disorder that has resulted in that. Okay, so uh, what changes in your body that gives you um, these menopause symptoms, stop you from menstruating? So the quintessential symptoms of the menopause are, um, firstly, your, your periods become a little less predictable than they used to be. Often you will start missing periods or they will start coming late um, or and when they come, they may be very heavy or very light. And along with that, many, many women will often experience what we call vasomotor symptoms. And those are your typical hot flushes and night sweats. You know, those, that sense of, um, not being as tolerant of heat as you used to be. I often say to my patients, because they'll often say to me, I don't know if I'm having sweat at night or am I just, is it just hot? And I say to them, well, if your husband is wrapped up in the duvet and he's fine and you're hot under a sheet, then one needs to ask whether you're having a, a night sweat or not. So that's often the first, some of the first signs. But along with that come changes in mood, um, increased anxiety and low mood. Um, you may find that your skin is drier, sex becomes uncomfortable because the vagina is dry, the libido goes down, sleep is often um, hugely affected, not just because of the flushes per se, but also the inability to fall asleep. So there is a whole cluster of symptoms that go go along with it. And, of course, there is the emotional um, aspect to this change of life, this menopause transition, because there is a sense of loss that comes with knowing your reproductive life is behind you. Um, and that's, you know, you are, you are now a, a slightly older lady than you feel, you know, and, and okay. it can be a difficult yeah. transition for women. Okay, so um, when a woman starts to have these uh, symptoms, how do you evaluate them or work them up? So in general, um, you don't need to do much to to make the diagnosis. I mean, if a woman comes in anywhere between 45 to 55 and she's missing periods and having hot flushes and night sweats, then the chances are that she's menopause she's perimenopausal or she's entered that menopause transition so we wouldn't necessarily do blood tests for for someone like that however if a woman comes in at say 45 or 46 and she is missing periods but she's got no flushes or sweats and no other symptoms of the menopause you just need to be sure that there isn't a thyroid problem or a pituitary problem that could be taking the periods away because sometimes it can be that it can also be some of the medicines that women women are put on as they get older can take their periods away so but by and large for most women you wouldn't need to do any investigations to confirm that they are perimenopausal 
certainly a woman under 45 and definitely under 40 needs to have um, blood tests to assess what's going on, why, why she is seeming to have entered um, the perimenopausal period. Okay. And uh, so once a woman has entered menopause, is it necessary to have hormone replacement? It isn't. So we like to think of menopause as being a natural phase in a woman's life. And it doesn't need to be medicated if she is comfortable and she is managing the transition well and her symptoms are not too bad or she doesn't have any symptoms at all. And particularly if she would prefer to do it without any intervention, then there is absolutely no reason to use HRT or hormone therapy at all. But often women will struggle significantly with the symptoms related to the menopause transition, and it can really affect um, their quality of life. It can affect their ability to perform their daily functions um, in terms of their career and their, their home responsibilities. And as long as a woman is of reasonably good health with no obvious reasons not to use hormone therapy and she is willing to use it as long as she's been well counseled. We certainly do offer hormone therapy to a large number of women to improve their quality of life. Okay. And is there any danger of taking hormone replacement therapy? Remember people used to say don't take it. It causes other malignancies. And you can take opposed and unopposed. You maybe want to explain that a bit for us. Yes, I can certainly. So if you look at, let's talk a little bit about what the pros and the cons of hormone therapy. So the pros, as I've already mentioned, relate to management of those menopausal symptoms um, and making you feel better. So that is certainly a very important, re, important positive. Another pro is that it significantly um, maintains your bone density because once we age, our bones do become weaker and that increases our risk of something called osteopenia and then eventually osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is a disease um, often of the found in the elderly population where they have an increased risk of breaking bones with very minimal trauma, tripping over a carpet, and that's enough to break a hip. And that has significant um, health repercussions um, for the older population. So using hormone therapy will not only treat osteoporosis, but also will significantly decrease the risk of becoming osteoporotic. So those are the two licensed indications for hormone therapy, but there are actually other benefits. It certainly protects your heart from um, heart attacks, from coronary artery disease. And we know that as women become menopausal, their risk of um, heart attack goes up to be almost as high as a man's. And that is of huge significance because Far more women will die of a heart attack if they have one than of a breast cancer if they have one for many reasons. So we need to be aware that that cardiovascular health is crucial as women become um, or or transition into the menopause and, and, and hormone therapy definitely helps that. 
It also helps with cognition and diminishes the risk of dementias. Um, and the, you know, those are all very, very important things to us as we, as we age. The biggest risks associated with hormone therapy, um, relate to the risk of thrombosis. So in other words, getting a clot in your leg that can travel to your lungs, um, called a pulmonary embolus, deep vein thrombosis of pulmonary embolus, and of course, stroke which is also a type of thrombosis of the vessels in your in your brain and that is because estrogen in an in an oral form when it's taken as a pill goes through your liver and it increases something we that the liver produces called the clotting factors and your clotting factors um or what make your blood clot. And, and, and when you take an oral hormone, th- hormone therapy, it can increase your risk of thrombosis. But we can almost completely remove that risk by using hormones through the skin. So either as a patch or as a gel, um, using the morena as a progesterone component of hormone therapy. So you can, you can minimize that risk. I think the biggest risk for women and or the risk that worries women the most is the breast cancer risk. Now, breast cancer is an incredibly common cancer. One in eight of us, one in eight to 12 of us is likely to get a breast cancer at some stage in our lives. And the thinking really is that if you use hormone therapy in what we call the window of opportunity, and that being as a woman starts to transition through the menopause and for about a decade after that, you are probably going to get the most benefit for the least risk. And the thinking is that, as a matter of fact, breast cancers that develop in that group of women in their 50s were probably cancers that were already there when they started their hormones or cancers that they were destined to get anyway, whether they were on hormones or not. And we know that those the hormones that they take will certainly make those breast cancers grow, but we generally will not um, write a script for hormone therapy every year without a new mammogram. So often the breast cancers are picked up much earlier in women on hormone therapy than in women who are not on hormone therapy. And the earlier you pick up a breast cancer, obviously the better the survival is from breast cancer. So I think the key is women need to be, to feel like it is something that they want to use Um that will benefit their quality of life. And they need to try and keep their use to that window of opportunity, which is probably about a decade um, around the menopause transition and just after. That is when using hormone therapy is going to be at its very safest. Okay, perfect. We're going to take another short ad break. We'll be back after this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we are speaking to Dr. Judith Carter, a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. And we're busy talking about menopause and hormone replacement therapy. Dr. Carter, how often does a woman in menopause need to come visit, uh, need to go visit her gynecologist? So certainly, From my point of view, if you're on hormone therapy, I like to see you every year to 18 months. Um, If you're not on hormone therapy, probably every couple of years is is good enough. But, uh, you know, I like to make sure that 
I check the breasts every year if you're on hormones. I want to make sure that you're not bleeding when you shouldn't be. Um, um, if we if we are giving you something like hormone therapy and to make sure that you are still comfortable with taking it for another for another year. Um, of course, I would screen for um, cervical cancer. So if you haven't had a recent human papillomavirus test, I would do that. And then also I make sure that women are doing the well woman check. So certainly over 45 to 50 women should be having a colonoscopy every 10 years. Women should be checking their skin for for funny moles and for melanoma every year or two. And often it's the gynae who is encouraging women to do that. So um, I like to see my my patients every year or two in the menopause. And uh, you just mentioned that you check the breasts uh, yourself. Uh, you examine them. Do you send them for uh, mammograms um, as well? Yes. So every every year... If you're on hormones, it is advisable to do a mammogram every year, regardless of what the medical aids say. The medical aids like to only have women do mammograms every couple of years. But once again, I think that comes down to health economics. There's a role, health economics plays a role there. And, and I think if, if we are going to prescribe hormone therapy, it's important to have a mammogram every year to 18 months for sure. And usually the the mammogram center will also do a breast ultrasound at the same time, um, which I think is quite important because not all cancers are detected on mammogram alone. And uh, what about bone densitometry? Do you ensure that's done at the same time? Is important with hormone replacement as well? So that's an interesting thing. I probably spend more time arguing against patients having bone density scans than arguing for patients having bone density scans. As a matter of fact, the first time a woman should have a bone density scan if she has no risk factors is 65 years of age. And women are often having bone density scans a lot earlier than that, sometimes even when they're not even menopausal yet, and it can cause problems because it's difficult to diagnose men, diagnose osteoporosis in a premenopausal woman. And, and yet somehow um, you will still get loaded as an osteoporotic woman by your insurance company and by your medical aid, even though it's 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 not so such a cut and dry diagnosis in a woman who isn't menopausal yet. So the only woman that I would um, do a bone density for and the first time would be at the time of menopause is someone who's got a first degree relative who's had osteoporosis or who has had a, a hip fracture, a woman who has needed to use um, cortisone for a cumulative time of three months in her lifetime women who have are smokers, women who have struggled with a low body mass index in their lives, um, women with diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, um, and, and a woman who has had what we call a low trauma fracture. So someone who has really broken a bone easily with very minimal trauma, those are the sorts of patients that need to be screened earlier than the 65 years of age. 
Thank you. Dr. Judith Potter, thank you so much for joining us on Disky Medical Monday today. Really enjoyed chatting to you for the past hour. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. Um, I hope you found that as informative as I did. Stay safe, and we will, please God, see you next Monday again on 101.9 High FM. Thanks again for joining us. High FM, your station of choice since 2008.